Well, hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Romance at a Glance. I am your host, Bridget, and today we are doing an Authors at a Glance with Sonali Dev. She's the author of such romantic books as Pride and Prejudice and Other Flavors, A Bollywood Affair and Series, and most recently, Recipe for Persuasion, which we are reviewing on Friday. Or if this is a future, we've already reviewed it. Hello, future people. It's nice to see you. We had so much fun interviewing Sonali. Shawnee got to fangirl hardcore over all of their favorite Bollywood movies. We talked about romance novels, well, duh, uh, which characters in her own romance novels she identifies with, sex scenes. I mean, we just had so much fun. She is vivacious and funny. She's fascinating and just filled with so much passion for writing, so much passion for the genre. I am 100% positive that you are going to enjoy this wonderful chat with author Sonali Dev. Also, guys, she's low-key a smoke show, so just putting that out there. Let's get it poppin'. Romance at a glance. Uh-huh. Romance at a glance. What you saying Romance at a glance. Go ahead, girl. Hi, Sonali. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Bridget. This is my co-host, Shawnee. Hey, I'm so excited you're here. I'm uh, so excited to be here. We are so glad that we found your books. Yes. Okay. So I grew up like immersed in Indian culture. My uh, my aunt and uncle actually uh, studied different cultures. And so I went in and spent the summer with them. Everything we did was around Indian culture and Bollywood. So I have watched hundreds, if not thousands of Bollywood movies. at this point Uh, and so I'm very excited to experience uh, your books because um, it's like the romance like to to feel the culture in book form is just exciting to me I'm like oh my gosh we found we found her I'm so excited (laughs) that's so great yeah there should be more (laughs) there's more you know authors now writing in that space but that's very exciting and and thousands I might not have watched thousands of movies myself so that's just (laughs) <laughs> I might have. I don't know. We'll we'll have to compare notes later. I'm, a, I'm an obsessive person, though. I only do things to the extreme. <laughs> That's so fabulous. I Yeah, I think, you know, I'm not going to admit to that, but mm, yeah. <laughs> I was uh, really excited that she was a soccer player because I watched Bend It Like Beckham in high school. It came out my junior, sophomore year while I was in soccer season. Me and all of my team went maybe 10 times to the theater, like still one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time. So as soon as she played soccer, I was like, oh, it's Bend It. It's grown up Bend It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think definitely Gurinder Chadda's best film. I used to think Bhaji on the Beach was, but but I think Bandit like Beckham is her swan song. I it mean, really it's is. Such a gorgeous, gorgeous film. I love yeah, it. <laughs> I do too. The music, the the pacing, like it's so good. One thing uh we are really excited about as we were reading your book is your book's pacing is so good. We've been reading a lot of books now as we've been reviewing and we found that like some people are at the beginning are like really telling us a lot, but not like bringing us along for the journey. Um, How do you break down that pacing and, and kind of have the characters showing us and doing it for us versus like you telling us? So so I think that's two different questions, right? One is, one is the, pacing and and the other is show versus tell and and I think um I I do and 
most of my writing happens in revisions. So I am, I mean, talk about being an obsessive person. I think, I mean, a hundred revisions is probably standard. This is why it takes me, you know, a year on, you know, once I get my hands on a first draft, it takes me a year because, um, because it, it's this flat, word vomit the first time it comes out but um so so all of the so so i do a lot of tightening and a lot of layering and a lot of that in revision over and over and over again until i can't see straight so some of it i think is that um so you know taking out every um extra word Put, putting in words, taking them out again, putting them in, like this kind of mad process, which makes no sense and is really not healthy. <laughs> but that's my process. I do think that one of the things that a lot of my writer friends talk about that that I don't struggle with is the sagging middle. And I think that is because, um, because the stakes are always so high. So they're high stake books. And someday I want to write like just, you know, a, a book with lower stakes because it's exhausting how how high stakes you know emotionally um and external but emotionally the stakes are very high um i'm i'm writing the third book in the series right now and he's running for governor and you know of course that whole thing with you know a whole kind of whole culture a whole community a whole family who's been dreaming of this thing is something he carries on his back and of course that's what he will destroy if a certain thing happens and so so the stakes are exhaustingly high I, I feel sometimes like too much and so by the time I kind of you know build those stakes and then start to come down from the story there's no place for this breathing in a story and sometimes I actually when I'm reading some authors that I love I do love that phase when they're you know when the couple is together and they're having you know mm -hmm. this you know they have a relationship and you get to see the relationship and sometimes, especially since these are Austin-inspired, structurally, the story ends when they get together. Right. And so you don't get to have a relationship with them. And, and, and you know, it is something I miss, but it helps with the pacing in terms of, you know, when you're reading books that have more of that structure, which is, you know, the, the actual romance structure, contemporary romance structure, where you get to see them having a relationship. And in those books, you're like, okay, now when is something going to go wrong? Because you know something is going to go I wrong. I know. I hate that feeling where you're like, oh, no, who's going to fuck it all up today? <laughs> and yet you love it, right? Because you're like, oh, they're so it. happy. I'm so happy with them. And and you don't, at least in, the, in these Rajay books, you don't get to see that because you don't get to be in a relationship with them. And so that that's something I kind of, you know, miss, but it's an advantage in terms of pacing because you're like, you know, what next, what next, what next? And um, and, and so the, the stakes keep rising and then boom, and then you're fixing whatever is happening. But it is a very, um, you know, I mean, at, at every point, I'm, I'm continuously... Uh, re-examining what that scene is saying, what you know, where they are at, because I think my entire process is basically just arcs, character arcs and story arcs. So where they started off, what they're trying to fix, where they started off, what they're trying to fix, where they need to be to let happiness into their life, and um, and and so I stay very true to that arc, and and that takes a while. 
because the first few um the first few versions um are only like that inside my head but not on on paper how did you come up with the idea of of sort of basing the plots on the pride and prejudice and jane austen novels so, so th- that was you know when we have these big dreams that are just like dreams and you don't really think and and being 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 a published author is is that too like when you're a little girl and for me you know there's authors who say you know well i didn't ever even think about being an author and it's literally something that i have dreamt about being for as long as i could remember even before i could talk to people about it or anything if you had ever asked me what was the one thing you wanted to be um even when i completely did not believe there was a chance in hell that that was going to happen it was being you know having my book on shelves and you know just being this and i always like perceived myself as this you know long straight hair you know great bone structure lots of i makeup <laughs> kind of you know the, the activist uh, author who had very intelligent things to say about everything so so it was always a dream and i think a, you know a part of that dream so very early on so of course i would dream of things that i would be writing about and you know shows i'd be on and awards i'd be winning and speeches i'd be giving in front of mirrors and things like that and one of those dreams was um was doing these jane austen retellings and i always thought it would be you know like i remember the first time that idea came to me oh you know what i want to do all four books and i want to do them under one story umbrella like isn't wouldn't that be brilliant and of course i never really believed that i would actually do it but once i had published my first book so i wrote down um the concepts for these four books in december of 2013 before bollywood affair came out so once i had sold and once i knew once i was having conversations with my then agent about you know what next this was what i the first thing i said to her and she said uh well you know austin is so austin doesn't sell anymore what a and, lie and, what a lie <laughs> she's not they make a new movie about jane aust they just made a new adaptation on hulu like this year Uh, and exactly and there were three uh, the year that um, pride prejudice and other flavors came out which was last year 2019 there were three south asian retellings you know in one year in in six months actually and all three of them were completely different books fabulous books and um and you know and and sold well so it's you know it was completely and and fortunately for me i'm stubborn enough where when she said oh you know this was my first and it's also really lucky to be a published author later in life well of course it's also lucky if you're 20 and you sell i did not have that experience but but being the you know being an older person when somebody tells you oh that doesn't sell what's next you're like oh no excuse me there's nothing next this is what i'm going to do and um you know and and we'll sell it you know if if something else doesn't sell that's their problem <laughs> and so it did not even for a second dissuade me that you know and I, so i always knew i was going to do it so that was the grand plan was to write these four which is pride uh, pride and prejudice persuasion sense and sensibility and emma as four standalone novels 
um, under one story umbrella, and that story umbrella is this gubernatorial race um, that the oldest son in this family is running. And so the, the books kick, kick off when he announces, and the books will end you know, when the election results um, come out. And so that was kind of my grand plan, um, which way back, like in, I was thinking about it for years before that, but 2013 is when I wrote it down. And the other thing I knew for sure was that they were not going to be scene by scene retellings, but they were going to be these complete um, standalone stories that were mine completely. And uh, that I just got to explore the things I learned from her books. So when I say homage uh, to Jane Austen, it literally is personally things that I picked up on reading as a very young person her books. And, you know, and, and and examining how that sits or what I learned as a person, because a lot of who I am as a person is based on the books I read as a child, as we all are. And and this is more an examination of those things than it really is. Oh, where's the proposal scene? Although there is a proposal scene in Pride, Prejudice and Other Flavors. But but you'll be and, you know, you've read the books that hard pressed to even find um you know, I feel like the them thematics are there, but there's no, uh, you know, there's really, it's not a scene by scene retelling. So you, you just mentioned that you uh, knew what you wanted to do. You knew that you had these four books and we're very curious um, how we like to ask authors, how much did you have mapped out before you started book one? Like, how did you know exactly like what was going to happen in each book before you even started? Or did you, it was a kind of a loose concept. Like, how did you figure out what that looked like? So I am, um, I'm, I'm an outliner. And as I said, I'm a story arc outliner. So I kind of, you know, I knew the characters in all four books because I knew this family. That's kind of where this started from, that there is this family. It starts for me from like, three generations right so from great-grandfather when there's like you know their, their great-grandfather the Maharaja who you know um, who built underground this whole underground system during the freedom struggle where he hid the rebels and like it starts from that because that's what comes down through you know through what they've been taught and even though they're royals and there's some indolence there a lot of it is this you know warriors and uh, you know revolutionaries against the british and things like that so it starts for me from there and then these three sons and how they are completely different than their kids and how they are you know so it kind of comes down from there and and so the character is where it comes from and so i knew the general stories or or at least what is wrong with each one of these protagonists and and of course, you know, I mean, it changes as you dig through a story and you find out more. Um, but but little things change. Like you know, I wasn't one hundred percent sure Rico was going to be playing, you know, football, uh, soccer. I he uh, when I first thought about it, you know, I was thinking sports person, and so he was probably going to be a football, you know, an NFL football player. And and then I realized that. You know, there were so many reasons why I did not want to do no, that. No, footballers <laughs> are so much better. I was all about the Premier League. When I was in South America, I had two separate people with that exact name who were, I used to call them my unicorn. Because it was like, I was traveling, so it was like near misses. You know, it's like we'd like have this great dinner with all these people, but then one of us would leave. And so I appreciated the name. I love the World Cup. I love the Premier League. 
was all over yes, it. So I Good do, choice. So, Nobody so, wants, I mean, the NFL, come on. No. Exactly. No. <laughs> and there were story reasons. There were story reasons. I mean, I have a huge number of issues. So I'm not um, growing I grew up in a house where my brother's um, room was, you know, floor to ceiling soccer players. We we literally had like, um, I think a 14 foot tall Maradona poster. I'm dating myself, but, <laughs> but you know, so a companion of my childhood was Maradona's thighs. And so, <laughs> you know, so, so there was... Um, so yes, we grew up. I grew up much more in a cricket and soccer. You know, we called it football, so the cr- cricket and football culture. Um, having said that, I have since kind of, you know, grown away from the uh, the team sports and the kind of you know making athletes gods thing. And then with the whole NFL thing and you know the Copernic thing that happened, and you know, so I have so many reasons why I would not touch NFL with them. Um, Mm-hmm. you know, with a large pole, but, um, but my son, and, and of course, I don't understand it at all. Like, it's like, what is going on? Like, why, why does everyone have a different role? It's a game. You should have a goal. You have a ball. You put the ball in the goal. Like, what is all this flags and guards? Yeah. And my son played, I think, through elementary school and middle school because Naperville is such a football town. And because my little, you know, South Asian boy wanted to be uh, an all-american jock and not a south asian nerd <laughs> so he had to do his journey so you know uh, the first time he went to practice i put his pads he was in third grade i think and or fourth grade and i put his pads on all wrong in those pants and the coach was like oh gosh are we gonna have to start here <laughs> i was like yes we're gonna have to start here and every one of his games i was like what are they doing again what where where are they going and my husband was like can you just just pretend you're getting it <laughs> so i started pretending so so i was not going to do nfl really but originally kind of you know you, you think this is set in America. And of course, the other story reason is that they had to geographically be separated for 12 years. And so it could have been that she's in San Francisco and he's in Chicago, but I didn't want that kind of, you know, it still stays in the news. Right. And in the So I wanted him clean gone for, you know, um, mm-hmm. for, for 12 years. And so soccer, of course, worked out really well. What is the character... Because you have so many great, like distinct voices in the books. Which character is the one that really that you're like rooting for that you connect with? Hard, hard question. Because of course, it's like asking me which of my children is my favorite. Uh-huh. And and my kids try this all the time, and I don't have a favorite. <laughs> They're like, mom, that can't be true. It's absolutely true. So uh, so I think it's a little bit like that. But I will say that in terms of, you know, personally, in terms of what I really connect with or, or someone who's been a character that has really given voice to so much that I needed voice given to is Shobi. And, uh, you know, so so I think Shobi is, is the vessel for all my feminine anger you know and and so being able to write her was such a gift was such a gift like I did not have to hold myself back um 
and it's it kind of is all out there you know and she she gave me and i love her because she gave me the chance to do that all the things i believe about women and indian culture but women across cultures everything i believe um you know about um about what happens to women who fight um what should happen and the fact that this is a person who proves everyone right in some ways and then proves everyone wrong by making her way out of that hell that they tell us will befall us if we're not everything to everyone if we don't sacrifice if we don't do the right thing all the time and and she is the person who with whom i got to play with this idea that what happens if we say no i'm putting myself first right what happens when we say that yes they will be right and yes we will lose things and yes we will hurt our children sometimes and you know and and yes we'll have really dark times but i want to dig out of that hole and say but yes we'll also find our full power and everything will be okay again and we will make our way back to our children and love and all of that and so i think just show me in this moment at this time i was old enough and a mature enough writer to write her whiles addressing so many of my personal issues so i think i i think as a personal um you know victory or as a personal healing she i think shobi is that character for me how i mean i know indian culture does have a lot of like you said like a lot of expectations on women and their role how did your family and friends respond to your decision to become a a writer in general and also a romance writer you know i get asked that all the time so there are expectations it's it's just in i think in pride prejudice and other flavors there's a line where the two kids are discussing their parents and they say that unconditional love is an oxymoron to our parents <laughs> and that is very true um you know i mean if you love someone how can you not have conditions how can you not push them to be their best you know i mean that's just how um at least and of course it's not a monolith people have all sorts of various um you know experiences and relationships with their own culture but that's mine is um you, you know our families our family doesn't practice a whole lot of boundaries <laughs> it's it's generally a pretty uh, foreign term <laughs> i mean wait wait there's there's families that practice boundaries <laughs> yeah i don't know them mine does not um i don't you know my son just turned 21 and this was the first time that um um uh, you know this was his first birthday that i was not with him and of course this was the greatest strategy ever to befall me and my daughter had to hold my hand and say mom he's a 21 year old man spending his birthday with his mom is <laughs> not you know at the top of his list and he was very sweet and very patient with me and he was like i'll come home then we'll celebrate it's okay <laughs> so you know that's um, and my mom is that multiplied by 100 like she would be you don't want to spend your birthday with me and so it would be a whole different so so you know we are what our kids call extra <laughs> proud but, but but so um you know it's it's um it's very much um it, it 
that like boundaries or um, you know so, so boundaries expectations these are just like words that that we don't process sometimes i think and and so um so so that line in pride prejudice and other flavors is very much like you know what you know what is unconditional love like we're starting from that that's our baseline <laughs> so so I, and your question of course i have forgotten what <laughs> was um it's just it's just how did everyone respond to you sort yeah, of declaring okay. you're a writer and a romance writer all right. So, um, so, so having said all of that, I think that the basis of that is love, right? I mean, everybody, in, I can say with complete, um, uh, you know, absolute confidence that everyone in my family wants me to be happy. And, and even though I push my children and, and don't give them space sometimes and all of that, really the only thing I'm interested in, in is them being happy. And, and, uh, and so, um, so I don't think I have had anything but pride and support from anyone, you know, I mean, I'll, um, it, everybody makes, you know, will, will use it as fodder for humor, of course, you know, um, with a lot of the, the sex jokes and the research jokes and all of that. But I think everyone is incredibly proud I also don't think, I mean, they think of um, me as someone who writes about love. So I don't think they think about, and this might just be a little bit of ignorance being bliss. I don't think that the whole, um, you know, weight that some um, some romance authors carry in terms of, I hate the words, to use the word stigma, but that's the reason you asked the question is that, you know, there are families who might think that there is a stigma to this. I don't think my family is aware that there is a stigma about writing about love, you know, so, um, so there is, um, so there's that. And it's very fortunate. <laughs> I'm very grateful for it. There are, you know, there are things like uh, my, including my children, they were very, very, very happy when my first cover came out and there was no man chest on it because they were <laughs> and I think you know they were like oh you know is it going to be like the books mom reads and then you know so I think they were a little worried so when they saw the hands on Bollywood Affair they were very happy that there was no there was no naked man on my cover and I was very sad yeah <laughs> yeah not. but so that and you know they've had um They've had my son was a freshman when Bollywood um, in high school when Bollywood Bride came out, and his friend group, uh, his his uh, the girls in his friend group read uh, the sex scene out loud in the cafeteria. So, so he he was you know I think he's traumatized for life. The yeah. poor child will never read a book that I write. <laughs> he reads all you know all the blog posts and all of that, but he will not like I think. I mean, you know, that's so, so stuff like that happens, but even with that, it's funny. It's not, you know, nobody, um, nobody thinks about this. Um, and if they do, they're doing it in a very, um, you know, they're doing it in a place where I cannot see it from where I'm standing. All I see is, you know, is support and pride. Um, and sometimes, um, you know, 
so, sometimes impatience with the world for it, you know, that I'm not Jumbalari yet, or you know, <laughs> that I'm not selling as much as Nora Roberts. So they 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 might even be uh, angry on my behalf <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> but but it's um, yeah, no, it's it's there not a moment ever of um, anything but pride. That's awesome. That's, uh, that's I feel awesome. so bad for your son. Like that's so that's just rude. Like those I girls, know. those girls should have been like all excited. Like, hey, <laughs> they, they were doing it to traumatize him, and he was traumatized. Sure. And you know, sure. I have to say that if I was them, I might have pulled something like that myself. So I can't judge them. But yeah, teenage girls can be <laughs> vicious. <laughs> Oh my God. So, so when I was a kid, I told Bridget this already, but like, um, I used to Photoshop, the, uh, not photocopy the pages out of the sex scenes out of romance novels at the library, you know, so I could take them home. We just have the photocopies. And I remember my mom finding my stash of just photocopied sex scenes. And like, I can't express to you like the, the terror, like, like what, when I saw them in her hand, like my entire being, my soul jumped out of my body and crawled away. How old were you? Oh God, I must have been like 15 or so. Yeah. Maybe four, like 14 or 15. So like anything like that, I'm like, oh my God, I can just, just imagine like the feeling of like, you know, it's like... This is my mom. But but I will tell you, you needed to find a better hiding place. What are you doing? No, her I got better. Dude, her mom no, no. like searched her room. Her mom my mom her yeah, mom like was a, the definition okay. of extra, like searching through her things. Her oh, yeah. hiding spaces were so complicated. <laughs> my my parents, on the other hand, just left. I mean, our whole house was covered in books always. Every room has bookshelves constantly, yeah. like like my husband's always like, do we need another bookshelf? And I'm like, what am I supposed to do with all my stuff? <laughs> I gotta put it somewhere. <laughs> and uh, the they would just have, I mean, romance. Novel. I mean, every every kind of novel was just. Up. I remember I read an Anne Rice one, based in New Orleans. I forget the name Ooh. of it, but uh, there's a ghost in it, and I remember the ghost has sex with the woman. And I remember like. I must have been 13 or maybe 14. And I remember just like being in my room, like my cheeks were so hot from the blush. And I was just, <laughs> like, my parents like, what are you reading? I was like, this book's. And they're like, okay. I mean, like, you know, if you want to talk about it, let us know. But I just remember like the hot blush, but let's talk. Let's talk oh my gosh. Let's talk about sex. I want to, sex is, sex is, you know, romance novels with no sex. is really just a novel. It's just fiction got to have a little steam at least a little steam you know so what what do you feel like about you know sex in your books how much is too much how do you decide you know do you ever like write something and you're like oh that might be too much for this type of book or this character do you ever think like you're reading through a draft and you're like wait a minute like we need to have a few more like maybe like lusty encounters what do you so so with uh when and and you guys have read the books. So the Austin one, so Pride, Prejudice and Other Flavors and Persuasion both have um, 
you know, what we call fade to black or closed door. I'm so sorry. That's okay. <laughs> both of you personally. But but of course, um, there's a reason for that. So here's my, my thing with, um, you know, with sex in my books is, you know, what all authors say is that it has to be part of the story and it has to, you know, be, be crucial to the story. I really, I think with my first four books, the first scenes, one of the first scenes, because I write out of order, I write, you know, I write high emotion scenes as they come to me because I'll be writing something and then this like really high emotion scene will come to me and I will write it down, you know, at least sketch it down. And uh, and all four of those books, the sex scenes were one of the first scenes I wrote because that's what we were moving toward right from the beginning, right? And so they are, I think, the heart of the books. Um, they are, um, I mean, absolutely pivotal, not even, you know, just um, a turning point, but absolutely pivotal scenes in all four of those books. I mean, there is the, the you know, in in a distant heart there's a scene where it starts with i don't want to die a virgin rahul like you know so she's trying to get her best friend to sleep with her because she's going to have a heart transplant and you know and she doesn't want to die a virgin and it's literally like that is and so so the entire book we're working toward that point right and and they're still pretending to be friends and nothing more than that and so they're they're um they're pivotal scenes in each one of them in, in a Bollywood affair. She is, she considers herself married to another man and, um, and, and she only sleeps with him after she realizes that she has basically lived a lie because her husband is married to someone else. And that's a whole like coming into her and owning her sexuality scene, which is also, I think something for me, that's a little bit different maybe from somebody who's grown up, you know, not in the Indian culture is this whole um, idea that all of my heroines have, and not not the Indian American heroines, so not in um, Recipe for Persuasion or um, Pride, Prejudice, and other flavors. But in the first four books, these are women who have reasons to have lost the connection with their own sexuality, where they don't own themselves. And one of the ways that they don't own themselves is they don't own their own bodies and their own sexuality. And so those scenes are very, very pivotal in them claiming themselves. And so, um, so in fact, in, in Bollywood Affair, I remember my editor saying, you know, because for, for some reason, um, that was my first book. Nobody had any idea where to put it on the shelf. So they were trying of trying to sell it as a mainstream book, you know, and so the, it was this whole, we don't, you know, nobody really knew how to sell it. Um, it wasn't a time of rom-coms, you know, and diverse rom-coms like now it was completely a different time. And, and so he, he's, you know, he said, since it's, it's going to be mainstream, we can cut a, a 10 page love scene down to two. And I, I remember saying, absolutely not. Like, this is when the book turns and this is going to stay this long, if not longer. And, and of course, you know, in, in revision, I made that. And so, so his, his feedback had more to do with, with the buildup, you know, with building the buildup more. And so he was completely okay with it, but I, but, but I think that's what it is to me. So um so no i've i've the only time i've been told to cut it down i have uh 
not even given it a thought, but uh, but they are they're incredibly um, important and in in these books. But again, like in Pride, Pride Prejudice and other flavors, when they finally get to that point, the story is already over for the reader. You already have gotten to the point as a reader where you need to be, you know, in their shoes. And so all you really need is the satisfaction of seeing them together um, and knowing that, you know, what the, so, so I do go into it enough to know, to give you a hint of what the texture of their lovemaking is going to be like, right? And with DJ and Trisha, there's that playfulness and, you know, because she's a, she's a clown and, you know, and so there's that whole, um, kind of, you know, friendly, um, they, and then again, Trisha's very comfortable with her own, with herself, right from the beginning of the book. I mean, there are things about her, her herself and what she's done that she needs to, in fact, she's too comfortable with herself. She needs to come down to a place where she's empathetic towards others. That's her journey, you know? And so for her, it's, you know, so f you don't have to see her go through, finding her body and her sexuality in that scene. So she's just having fun, you know, and they're both having fun and you do get to see that. So then there's really no reason for more than that. And and um, and in Recipe for Persuasion too, it's not the first time, you know, by the time they get to that point, you're already at, okay, we get this. Like we got this, what's happening with the rest of it? So let's move on. So again, it's a pacing issue, right? At that point where, I, holding the camera in that place would have been gratuitous if I had put sex into these books. Yeah, I think like an epilogue at the very end, like a lot of people do, where they're like, let's just have them in bed and wrap it all up would have felt very odd. <laughs> Disingenuous, for sure, yes. So we're also quite curious uh, where, like where you write, like how you write. Are you alone? Are you at a cafe? Do you need people? Are you like a hive mind type of person? Like, how does it go down? Again, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I wish I had answers to these questions because I'm, I'm whatever it, whatever I need at that time. Right. And, and, um, you know, it's, it's not simple. <laughs> it's all I'll say. So, so I do, when I'm in the zone, I can write in the middle of, a, you know, a storm in the middle of a party, you can put me anywhere and I don't care I can completely block everything out when my kids were little I wrote you know wrote on bleachers when they're you know in the middle of wrestling competitions and in the middle of uh you know swim meets um I wrote you know wrapped up in a blanket on a soccer and football field so I could write anywhere when I'm in the zone when I'm not in the zone you know when I'm struggling when I'm doing that whole oh my gosh I'm never writing another book again when I'm in that you know I've forgotten how to write a book and every single book I forget completely forget how to, and and I was there like I think a week ago where I was like I seriously don't fucking remember how this is done like I have no idea what I'm going to do and so when I'm in that phase or in that stage, you can put me, you know, in a, and, and, and this, uh, you know, these past three months have proven completely beyond a doubt that isolation and solitude don't equal productivity at all. And so you can put me in this, you know, this completely quiet, all my stuff here desk 
and and I'll still be like, okay, what's on the internet? What's going on? You know, what's happening on Twitter? And who said what? And pick up my phone and say, oh gosh, what happened? How are you doing? And so, you know, clean my house, cook all the food, you know, bake, and I'm not even a baker. So all of that starts to happen. So it's very internal. And I've also, you know, found that there's just a cycle to it. It's almost like, you know, your, you know, your hormonal menstrual cycle. There's a cycle to it. You start a book, you have, you know, you feel like you completely got it. You sit down with it. You got nothing. Then you push and push and cry and sob. And then, you know, you got something, then you got nothing. And then suddenly it starts to flow. It doesn't. So there's this whole like crazed process. And and I think my physical surroundings um, make not a difference to it, like at all. That there are times when I'll be, you know, I just, I'm, I'm doing good. I want to go sit in a coffee shop, you know, just because I just, maybe it'll spark, you know? So, so that kind of stuff I'll do. I write in the library, I'll kind of, you know, write here and there, but in all honesty, it's really what's going on inside the head that, that kind you know, dictates what's happening on the paper more than where I am. That makes complete sense because there is so I, I've been working from home for years now and and Shani works from home or is working like on set or in the music studio or, or whatever so it's it, it, you can be at home and have the perfect quote-unquote working environment and get nothing done I'll do the same thing <laughs> I'll clean my house I got babies so I'll, oh, I'll just play with the baby for a little bit oh, I'll just go cook some food I'll just clean up all the food I just go oh, I'll just like plant some stuff in my yard and then all of a sudden I'm like oh, I did literally zero things for myself today you're, you're, um, like, you're like it's 10 o'clock at night like how did, <laughs> how did this happen I mean it's July no it's June I I'm know sorry. see in my it's June that's half a year gone I, I don't need it you know I mean this was New Year's Eve yesterday uh, so yeah Shawnee left <laughs> we last saw each other I think on like February 29th or March 1st or something and yeah. my kid was five months old and now she's eight and a half months old. And Shani saw her the other day on video and was like, oh my God, my baby, she's getting so big. It's my baby, it's my best friend. Because for the first five months of Molly's life, she was here three times a week, cuddling her and like playing with her. And now, so like time has really, even though quarantine feels like we've been in quarantine forever, like it, it has been a long time. I mean, it's been months of being, you know, essentially at home away from people. Yeah. So can you first okay. <laughs> on the baby? Oh what'd you say? I didn't hear you because it was like, congratulations. <laughs> oh thank you. Thank you. She's very cute. She could crawl. Her name is Molly. And I have a two and a half year old named Kira. And uh they are just peaches. Molly's like the chillest baby of all time. Like I schedule these interviews knowing for sure that she will be asleep between one and three without fail like as long as her morning nap like she is just she's a peach she's a peach i, I like, love that i like her i love that mine were okay. easy too and i didn't tell people that because people hate you, you i know, know. My daughter slept through the night in the hospital and i i told the doctor should i wake her up like is something wrong with her like is my baby going to live and he's like woman you know, people would pay like a million dollars in the hospital first night. She slept yeah. through the night. Yeah, my kids. And he was like, don't tell people they might kill you. 
My, I try not to talk to people about my kids' sleep schedule unless they ask for advice because both of them have slept more than 10 hours a night since they were like, I don't know, yeah. 10, 10 weeks probably. And by yeah. six weeks, they were both sleeping like seven hour, eight hour stretches. Like they're just good. We worked on our schedule. We worked on our, I mean, we did our diligence and they like yeah. sleeping. Molly's Molly's big problem right now is she wakes up at 5.30 because she has to poop because she's eating so much food. That's our big, I'm like, wait till 6.30. Let's get another hour of sleep. But <laughs> Does she go back to sleep if after she poops? No, we just eat and stay up and then she takes her morning nap at like, you know, 8.30, 8-ish. So yeah, so it's good. It all it all works out. She's a peach. I have, I have a question on behalf of Shawnee because Shawnee exclusively listens to audiobooks does not read a book anymore physically we read one so far in our tenure of the show and we have decided we're never doing it again and we'll only do books that have audiobooks because honestly because her the big difference was her review changed we were talking about this we said if if there had been an audiobook i think she would have reviewed it more favorably because she's just used to that medium Versus she's just not used to reading. Whereas I only exclusive, I never listen to audiobooks. But how do you, do you get a say in the narrator? Do you get to choose them? Do you get to kind of QC the way? Because like, especially for your books, because they have so many different names that need to be pronounced correctly. How do you, do you get to be involved in that? Yes. So um, I think my first couple books, um, you know, they, I was just like, wow, there's audio, right? You know, I mean, with your first books, you're like, wow, there's a cover. Wow. You know, like <laughs> great gift that you are not worthy of. <laughs> and it's all just gratefulness as it should be because it's so joyous. But, uh, but yes, uh, with these books, I have, you know, I'm sent clips, I get to pick. Um, and then one of the things I do is um, I, I I record myself saying the names uh, the and both the only two narrators I've had are were both American uh, Indian American mm. and so you know it wasn't like words were that foreign but um, you know even so I you know I mean it's um, both of them were not from Maharashtra which is you know. The part of India I'm from, and so there are words because I have Marathi words in there, and so I'll pronounce them. So I, I do record the words for them, um, and and um, you know, and send them over. There are I didn't get to do that with my first one, and there's still stuff in there that I'll be like, oh, you know, a little bit of a cringe. And I think one of the big things, and I think Priya Iyer is an amazing narrator, like she really has a gorgeous voice and she did a uh, Bollywood affair and Bollywood bride. Um, but in the first book in Bollywood affair, you know, the nuance, because they're both from India, they're Indian characters. They're not Indian American characters. They just are here for a short period of time. So it's set here in Michigan, but it is, uh, you know, they're both Indian characters and he is, um, you know, he's anglicized urban and she's, you know, from a village. Um, and, and so if you had to do the accents, like the two separate Indian accents, you would do them like that, but they're flipped over. And so her accent is very, you know, is, is almost, you know, is, is the more urban anglicized and, and he sounds a little more Indian in some of the scenes. So, you know, things like that can happen. Um, 
but but now I as far I could not even have predicted that to say be careful about that not that you know at that point I just got the audiobook but now I do you know words um and I will say that this one so so from that that time on I started to say Ria is from Bombay so she has an urban Indian accent and Vikram of course is in you know is from California so he has a, you know a, a a Californian, you know, accent. And so, um, so I, yes, I get, um, and, and it's really wonderful. I think how publishers are, you know, being, um, being so, um, overtly conscious of these things now, or at least I'm lucky enough to have an editor and publishers who are doing that. Yeah. Have you, so humor me on this because Nobody else I talk to knows anything about Bollywood, so I'm very excited about this. Um, <laughs> uh, do you pull from from your like favorite Bollywood movies? What is your favorite Bollywood movie? And who's your favorite ho- your favorite Bollywood power couple? Oh my gosh! I mean, you I know you want me to say Ranveer and Deepika. I know you want me to say Ranveer and Deepika. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think they are currently the most gorgeous, uh, you know, Indian couple, and um, and they just feel so. You know, of course, actors, what we see of them, and what you know, what's really going on in their lives, we don't know. But but. But based on the image, um, you know, imagery that we see, I, I, there's something so delightful about, you know, Ranveer Singh and Deepika together, because I follow them both on Instagram. And one of the most delightful things is their comments on each other's posts. It is just freaking adorable because they'll say these like very um you know very funny very what real like what a real couple would say to each other like they make fun of some you know even even if it's this completely posed model shot to just someone hanging out in the house and so just the things they say to each other are so adorable so I do love them so much um there are other couples that I feel are just like you know oh come on like really you know, you can't possibly be like, oh, he's the best guy on earth, like all the time. <laughs> the marketing exercise. And, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a flimsy, very transparent marketing exercise. So stop it. Yeah. You know, so, so, so they, are, they are able to, I think, not, not do that. Like their relationship feels very, very real and something uh, very relatable. To me, but of course they're from Bombay. They're very much the kind of you know little social bubble that I'm, you know, I've grown up in. I'm, I'm used to, so I very much relate to how they relate to each other. But but influences, um, so so of course I'm influenced. You know, I think stylistically so much by. I mean that whole high stakes heightened drama thing. Uh, that is very much stylistically part of my work is very Bollywood. Like it's a very specific storytelling style and, and newer Bollywood is, is grittier and more re, you know, real, not all, you know, the seventies and eighties Bollywood was just over the top to a point where you didn't even like you had to, the, what we used to say about it is that you had to actually put your, you know, set your brain aside and watch which always kind of annoyed me. I'm like, why do you have to set your brain aside and watch a film 
right? A film should be a story where I get to keep my brain. Thank you very much. And so I think that, that you know, pre-70s, like uh, you know, when people like, when Rishikesh Mukherjee was making his films, that was that. It was, of course, it was larger than life stories sometimes, but it was very common, common man. And it was very real. You know, it was all very... Um, you could put yourself in those shoes and then 80s and 90s just was like what is going on and um it was this whole explosion of craziness all the time and you had to set your brain aside and i think the newer um films again have started paying some heat to realism while still keeping that you know that heightened emotionality so if you're watching gully boy or you know dil dhadakne though they're still very much in the bollywood style but you don't have to put your brain aside. You're thinking. They're still making you. And I think that's my, um, you know, that's it. I, I, I want it to be very entertaining. But I do want you very much to be in possession of your brain and using it and kind of hopefully prodding it to grow in some way, you know, which is so, so, so certainly, um, you know, my, my Bollywood influences, I think, from um, some of it is from the 70s and some of it is. The, the newer Bollywood, um, but there is that um, that larger than life feeling of you know. I mean, you want you want the songs to be bursting in your head, right? You want the violence to be playing when a you know a sad thing is happening in your head, and so in those ways, very much um, very much an influence in a Recipe for Persuasion. If you remember, there's actually. Um, you know, references to, uh, again, with Shobi, because I was, you know, so, because she is so my angry feminine scream, feminist scream. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, there's there's the reference to that scene from Kabhi Kabhi, right? Where, um, you know, w which was such a part of, while growing up, the stories we were watching, right? The stories that we were watching in... Um, so, 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 so... I, I have not finished Recipe for Persuasion. I'm almost there, right? But Kabi oh, no. Kabi, so so whenever I am so sad, I put on that Kabi Kabi Mera Dil Me. I don't know why, but it, it just like when I, that's my jam. I, I, I have to say, I listen to that probably once every three months at least. I'm like, where is my song? I need it. I need it. I, that's so, something that I listen, I listen to it every. I think once a day, maybe. So it's like it's the softest, sweetest. Like it puts me in in such a mood when I listen to that song. It's amazing. So now that I know, so I haven't actually got there. So now I know it's coming. <laughs> have excited. you have you watched the movie though? Have you watched Kabi Kabi? Yeah, many times. Yeah. So so it is in my opinion. Again, you were asking for a favorite. It's certainly like up there you know, top five for sure. It is, I think, uh, it was made in 1973, 74, thereabouts. Yeah. And uh, so ahead of its time. The things that it gets into are so ahead of its time. And um, and and just the complexity of storytelling and everything is very much, uh, you know, a cut above what else was being made, I think, at the time. And it has, and so it has, um, you know, it has aged well. You can still watch it. And it's not, you know, it's not some of the movies that I remember loving as a child are crazy, crazy pants now. It's like, what? <laughs> you know? And so this one has is there's a lot of very sensitive and sensible stuff in there. But still there is, um, you know, growing up, one of the things that was in all all of these 
you know, or, or in several Bollywood films was the whole concept of, um, you know, of, of the, the arranged marriage trope, Bollywood style was very much, if you're forced into a marriage with somebody, um, because of the sanctity of marriage, if you put your head down and you accept that and you make a compromise, then, then essentially you find happiness and, and possibly more happiness than you would have found had you gone after what you really wanted. And I always thought that was a horrible, horrible um, message to be sending out to women, right? And it used to make me very, very angry. And, and, and Kabhi Kabhi, the song is, um, is filmed on her marriage bed when lit and, and she's married, married off to someone else when she was in love with this poet and her husband, whom she doesn't know, makes her on their wedding night sing this poem that her lover wrote for her. Like it was so uh, violating to me. Like I used to, and everybody, and it is, it's such a gorgeous song. He's a great guy. It all works out for them, you know, because she throws herself into this new relationship knowing she has no choice. So she makes her life and everybody's life around her better and all of that. But it's still a terrible message for me growing up because I'm like, no, but she was in love with the other guy. She wanted him, you know, and and um and and you're telling me that she's happy because she and of course she's happy because she put her down, head down and you know made a compromise but don't tell me that in storytelling right that's wrong that tells me the wrong thing and so i wanted like to head on address that and and you know in recipe she head on addresses that because she's in that exact same situation and she's like excuse me not you know not a fucking chance that i'm doing this that i'm putting <laughs> okay with this and and so that it was a it was very directly addressing something that bothered me growing up um and and in the film they do address it like her husband you know years later when they've had this long happy marriage he says it he says that you know not for a moment in your life did you not give me everything you you were and you know it's the greatest gift you not even for a minute did i ask if you know you were unhappy with anything or uh, and and maybe i should have and it's amazing how women can do that and you know yeah oh well women can do that because they don't have a fucking choice you know and so 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 it is so there is you know some direct um you know directly addressed issues from the Bollywood of my childhood every once in a while. I think that's really, um, really powerful, really interesting. I I mean, I grew up watching these and I, I remember watching um, Hamdilde Chukesanam. Hamdilde Chukesanam is the other one. Thank yes. you. Yes, which, you know, in which, you know, uh, she's in love with the, the musician, the artist, and then she gets the arranged marriage. I, I am going to speak over you right because I was that movie made me so angry, so so angry. I, I mean, you know, I mean, they have you set up, you set us up, you set me up watching this thing with this beautiful love because Salman and Aishwarya literally have this gorgeous relationship, right? You make me fall in love with them, and then boom, she's supposed to like fall in love with this you know, whoever, you know, Joshmo Schmuck off the street. Well, he's not Joe Schmuck off the street, but you know what I mean? To her, he is. Like, who are you? What are you doing in my life? And just because Daddy Dearest decides that's 
the right guy. And that was such an issue for me. And for those who don't know about this film, she's in love with someone, her dad throws a fit and forces her into a marriage with someone else. And then this someone else is quote unquote, such a great guy. Well, you know, I'm being a little facetious and angry, but he's a great guy. And he says, well, if you're not in love with me, then I swore to make you happy. And so I'm going to take you to find whoever this guy that you were separated from is. And he takes her and this guy is from Italy. And so, you know, he takes her on a trip across Europe looking for her ex-lover. And it should have been like all fine, great. You know, you're a great guy. That's great. There's my lover. And it was very nice meeting you instead in that process because this guy loves her so much and because there is the sanctity of marriage she ends up falling in love with her husband and it was preposterous <laughs> i'm like what so i was very very angry <laughs> with that movie too i feel and, like that and did you watch I was did, did you watch Go on. I was going to say, I feel like that's the difference between uh, American movies and because in American movies, the parent tries to force the person to marry who they don't want to and they like run away and never speak to the family again. And that's like the story of the movie is them either not speaking to their family again or years later, the family like finally accepting them because they had kids or or someone's dying or whatever. But like, I feel like the American- That's, like, that's nice. You, you just them. described- you just described Cubby Cushy Cubby Gum. Cubby Gum. <laughs> so that's a lot of Hindi movies too. Have you watched yes. Manmanhia? No, no, I haven't. So that is that that's very much Hamdil De Chuke Sanam, but but it's the focus is on female agency. So it really does is not about her parents saying no. It's not about any of that. It's about this guy being, you know being a putz and kind of just not getting his act together and having cold feet and having, you know, commitment issues. So he's in love with her, but he can never, you know, he kind of, when she needs him to come up to scratch, so to speak, he can't and all of this. So it's very much between them. And she says, you know what, screw you. I'm going to marry the next guy who comes along. And then the next guy who comes along is a really nice guy. And so she gets caught in this situation where she is like, okay, I'm in love with this other guy, but this guy is great too. And so it's very much her journey, which is fine. It's not someone telling her, you know, X or Y. Of course, Manmarzi, I think, loses the plot a little bit because they didn't quite know what to do with it then because here she is and there are these two great guys and, you know, it's now her decision. So what does she choose? And so it goes all over the place after that. But that's an okay discussion to have. But to say, oh, you know, because a lot of Indian culture in terms of storytelling is acceptance, you know, the, the whole God give me strength to accept the things I cannot change, you know. And and uh, and I think that maybe it's time to tell stories where you're, where you're saying, you know, help me change the things I cannot accept. You know, we have to kind of change that lens a little bit. So, yes. So that actually kind of leads me into something. So um, in Hamdal Dechu Kesanam, there was, this was the first time I encountered colorism in a, in a Bollywood movie where they actually like came out and said it, right? So she was in love with the artist, but the guy that she was engaged to be married to um, had darker skin. And so one of the, she, she doesn't want to marry him. She's talking about that. And somebody says to her, Oh, you don't want to marry him because he's dark skin. And I, 
I very much remember that line. Um, and so it just kind of segues me into uh, the question, which is like, um, when you think when you're thinking about writing your books and the characters that are going to be in them, um, what do you think of in terms of um, inclusion and having people of other ethnic ethnicities in those stories? And then what would you do or do you do to prepare um, to tell those stories um, with the most accuracy and with the most, um, you know, like, yeah, accuracy, basically, <laughs> as, as possible. Yeah. Um, and that's a great question because, you know, there's two sides to that. And one is that I'm very much interested in um, telling a certain kind of Indian story um, in terms of it never being poverty porn or, you know, it never being, uh, never um, working its, you know, way into Western, you know, fantasies of exoticism and, you know, things like that. So it's, it's very much, I mean, there is culture in it, but it's, it's there because that happens to be who the characters are. And the stories are always about the conflict and about the character arc. The stories are not about um, the culture. And, um, and, and so, again, that is a little bit of a hard sell because, um, because often our stories are seen as, you know, as, oh, let me, you know, let me take a walk in the shoes of this Indian person. And then when you've read one, you're like, oh, I've read one of those. So I know now, I mean, there have literally been readers who I have heard say, oh, I've read one of those. I know what it's like in an Indian family. And, you know, I'm making big eyes here, which you cannot see on the podcast, but it's like, um, really. And and also, you know, so, so there are these preset notions that an Indian story has to, an Indian American story has to be about immigrant angst, you know, that uh, an Indian American story has to be about someone or any immigrant story has to be about running away because your home has become too painful. Are those real stories? Yes. Are those important stories? Yes. Is that the only story? No. A lot of immigrants come here for the same reasons immigrants years and years ago came for, for you know, for adventure, for meeting their, you know, highest potential because something interesting and exciting outside of what they knew called to them. Because, you know, either we are nomads or we are trees. Like I always say this about my brother and me, that, that you know, he's a tree. You know, his roots, he would, you cannot imagine him outside of where he, he where he grew up and he lives. And, and for me, I always feel like an outsider wherever I am. I just have that mindset of, you know, a traveler. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, I want to constantly grow. I want to see more, you know, so, so, so a lot of immigrants come here for that independence and adventure and all of those things, which is one of the reasons I think this, you know, we make, we make this country great is because we bring that innovation and excitement with us. Right. And so where are those stories, right? It's not, you're not always fleeing persecution. You might be fleeing a, a life laid out too straight for you. Right. And, and you might be um, you might be fleeing things you've not even recognized in your youth that that you knew something more 
there was something more, you know, that, that there is something more inside you and you couldn't even name it. So there's many, re you know, so, so I want to tell Indian stories that feel authentic to me. And, and these are the journeys that feel authentic to me. But I want the stories to be about what's going on in these characters' lives, you know, and, and their journeys to becoming a better person, to healing wounds and things like that, not about waking up in the morning, looking in the mirror and thinking, oh my gosh, I'm a brown person and I don't fit in America, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I really don't think, know anyone who actually does that. And yet in books, that's what we're told, you know, people are doing. So, so that's the, you know, that's the Indian um, aspect of it. And I also specifically, I think, um, wanted this set of books because these, um, the Austin books, the Rajay family is, is very overtly, um, you know, I'm with those books, I'm overtly exploring assimilation, right? Versus, um, you know, I'm, I'm overtly talking about making home, the act of making home. And, um, and, and so you're not alone in that, right? You're a 1% minority making home in a place which is a home to a lot of people who don't look and act like you. So that assimilation is about you wanting to be accepted. And, and again, this happens in immigrant communities. While you're very indignant about being accepted for who you are, you, you may not show that same courtesy to those who aren't like you. And so, which I think, again, all bubbles do. And it is certainly something we should be talking about. And so there's a lot of that in these books. When I, and, and so DJ, again, uh, you know, is, is a Black British character who is half Rwandan, half um, Anglo-Indian. And, and um, again, what, what I was actively looking at in that book was what do people see when they see you, right? So when you see me, so often, um, you know, people see an Indian woman of a certain age. And that comes with this whole story they've already made up about me in their head based on, you know, either books they've read or other Indian people they've met or whatever, right? And, and this happens to all of us. And so with DJ, I was, and with Trisha, right? Because how Trisha feels, um, is 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 you know when people see her and he sees her and says like she doesn't even realize she's in you know she's she's not a white woman sometimes and that may be true but again it's not he's judging her and so there's a lot of that i was trying to kind of play with and and dj when somebody meets him for the first time they they are bringing whatever they project onto an african american person or an african american man that they see and he, he is not, he is black, British, Anglo-Indian, right? And so again, a whole different history, a whole different, you know, identity. And he's not allowed to have it because boom, you are what I see you to be. And, um, and, and how does that work, you know, for a person? And how do we learn to navigate that? Um, you know, and, and I see that in my own life, right? Sometimes I'm overtly trying, for for many years, I was overtly trying to translate myself all the time, all the time. I was like, "Oh, look, I'm just like you. Oh, look, I'm just like you." And um, and at one point, you grow up enough to think, "I don't know if that's my job, right? To to translate myself for you all the time." 
it is your job to meet me at least halfway. And and so that growth, I think, is something, again, I explore in my characters. And, and as far as writing, um, you know, writing DJ, again, the whole Anglo-Indian culture comes with, you know, it's, it's this very... Um, uh, it's this interesting cultural phenomenon because 200 years we were colonized by the British. And so you had a large subculture of, you know, of the progeny that came from that intermingling. And, um, and, and in some ways they didn't belong, you know, they didn't feel like they belonged to the Indian culture. And then the British culture didn't feel like they belonged entirely to them. And so there was this whole, and, and colonization comes with, you know, laddering, a cultural laddering and all of that. And so, so there is this, and talk about colorism, right? There is this family who returns to England and, uh, and is trying to wash, literally trying to wash the brown out of their, uh, out of their bloodline. And, um, and, and so, you know, their son, who is this hazel-eyed, you know, completely white-looking man, in their view, uh, they, they do believe they have now washed the brown out of their <laughs> bloodline and then he falls in love with a Rwandan refugee. And so it's, you know, and, and this to me is, you know, is, is just delicious. <laughs> it's just like, you know, you guys, are, you're, you're idiots, right? You're fucking idiots because love doesn't have anything to do with any of this and uh and you know and beauty has nothing to do with it and so so little ways in which you play with all of that then again dj and uh, emma handle their own you know their own color and their own racial genetic material they've gotten from both their parents in completely different ways and they and they process it differently and so there's um you know, of course, these are just these single characters and not speaking for entire cultures. But but I'm really, really um, fascinated by digging into those things. And um, and as far as authenticity. Oh, gosh. So so Rico is um, Rico is uh, is born and raised in Rio de Janeiro. He's Brazilian, again, British mother. And he's, um, you know, his father is from Brazil. And um, and and we visited Rio about three four years ago, and that was purely me just falling in love with that place. And I mean, I was in Rio de Janeiro, and I knew I was going to write. Um, a, I was going to write a character who was from there because it's such a spirit city. As someone who's grown up in 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 Mumbai, for me, you know, you can never ever take. Mumbai or Bombay out of me like that's just such a part of my identity and who I am and and Rio just is that kind of city and so I knew I was going to write you know a person who was born and raised there so there's uh, there's a lot of that but but of course I can there's no way I can get around the fact that I can write with utmost authenticity an Indian character and when I write a character of a different culture, I have to have the humility for one. I have to do all of the, you know, as I study as much as I can. I always try to write, um, you know, if I'm going to write a major character who is not my culture, I at least will try and write someone that I have friends in that culture and not like, I just made friends with you to write this character, but someone I have, you know, friends I have had for 10 and 20 years. 
and um, be because then at least you have some you know shared um, shared life story and of course you do all the research and everything but you still have to be willing to accept that you know you 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 don't have the generational memory and you know I, you don't have the gen, you know the the handed down um experience or the 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 baby you know i mean our experience from the time that we are toddlers to the world is within our culture and so of course somebody who's writing you know when when someone writes in their own culture there is more authenticity to it and um which which doesn't doesn't mean that with you know with humility and with curiosity and wonder that that you try to so so it's and the other thing is i'm not trying to write about what it's like to be a black man i'm trying to write about what it is like to be dj kane and you know and and that's the only thing i can do authentically because i you know because dj kane has come from my heart and my mind and i can tell the story of dj kane and and rico silva same way Sonali, this has been just such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, tell our dear friends where they can find you. What's the best way to connect with you? And aside from buying all of your books, which we definitely recommend how they can support you as an author. For buying all my books. <laughs> I, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Um, all of those links are on sonalibave.com. Um, I have a newsletter in which I send out, you know, which I barely send out. It's my uh, probably one a month. And I do something called the three R's, which are, you know, a recipe, a recommendation and a really bad joke that my family sends me on group chat because why should I suffer alone? Um, and, um, and, and currently you can buy signed books from, uh, women and children first, which is a Chicago, uh, independent bookstore. Anderson's Bookshop, which is also a Chicago area bookstore, and um, Love Sweet Arrow. So there are three fabulous indies that all have signed copies of Recipe for Persuasion and a lot of my other books as well. So please support the indies. Um, and of course, uh, if you can buy the book, buy the book. And if you can't, because these are tough times, um, your libraries should have all of them. And it, it's always really helpful to put the book on hold at your library if it, and, and request it if they don't have it, because that really helps too. And it's your taxpayer dollars. So yeah, support libraries, indie bookstores, and me. <laughs> all right. Well, we will have all this the links, amazing. links to those signed uh, copies at the independent bookstores in the Chicagoland area. And also links to connect with Sonali. Thank you so much again for being here. This was great. Thanks for hanging in with us, romance readers. Head over to Instagram to continue chatting with us. We're super friendly. We want to cackle with you. We want to know what your favorite sex scene was. And we need more book recommendations. If you want to read along with us, go to our website, romanceataglance.com, to see what we're reading next. And we'll see you next podcast.